And so this incredibly dense novel comes to a close. What did you make of it? I'm Roger and this is Bookshook. And in this episode, I discuss the second half of July's book, Gravity's Rainbow. So each month I take a book I've never read, split it in two and discuss each half on the second and last Fridays of the month. I'll do a first impression summary alongside my thoughts and reactions and then raise any interesting ideas so far in the novel. But be aware, there may be spoilers. I'd love to share your thoughts and ideas at future episodes, so please leave a comment or start a conversation below. Or if you're listening to the podcast, send an email to bookshook at yahoo.com. Welcome to Bookshook. So this podcast is all about the second half of Gravity's Rainbow, from page 455, and in the US that's 383, part 3, section 8. It's the paragraph starting, quote, A Soft Night. An Argentinian crew have hijacked a U-boat. Quote, For this crew, nostalgia is like seasickness. Only the hope of dying from it is keeping them alive. We learn how Squalidozzi escaped from the British army across Germany and how he met the director, Von Gaal, the one who shot the film Grigori the Octopus, was watching in the first half, and Blodgett Waxwing, the forger. Squalidozzi has ambitions for making another film about Fierro's withdrawal from General Roca's attempt to exterminate the native people of South America. His plan is to get to the Lüneburg Heath and meet von Gohl. Seaman Bodine shoots a missile at the U-boat, but it misses. And one of the questions at the end of the first half was what had happened to Slothrop? Well... It turns out that Chicharin was the one who drugged him. He wasn't killed, he was drugged. And he wonders why Slothrop is seeking the quintuple zero and wishes he could be, quote, motivated personally to get to Enzian. Chicharin plans on tracking him. In the next chapter, Slothrop wakes up in a white room and then moves through a movie studio, one of von Gohl's movie studios. He sees Margrethe... Greta Erdman, the movie actress who is looking for her lost daughter Bianca. Greta poses for him in a very erotic way and the narrator seems to compare the top of, quote, this singular point at the top of a lady's stocking to, quote, watching that singular point at the top of the rocket where the fuse is. The narrator goes on to pose a question, quote, do all these points imply, like the rockets, an annihilation? What is that, detonating in the sky above the cathedral, beneath the edge of the razor, under the rose? In the next chapter, Franz Puckler is making love to Greta Edmund. It excites him so much that later that night, he makes love to his wife, Lenny, the first time for a long time. And this probably conceived Ilza, their daughter. Then we have a flashback to Lenny, scolding Franz Puckler for not realising that his dreams of going to Venus i.e. the development of the rocket, are going to be used by the army to help kill people. We're introduced to Fritz's fellow rocket makers. They're two rather mystical characters, Kurt Mondalgen, who believes in the idea of paired opposites, and Faringer, who, quote, went out in the pine woods at Pinamonde with his zen bow and roll of pressed straw to practice breathing, drawing and losing over and over. He's obviously a very spiritual person. We now have absolute clarity from the narrator about Enzian. In the first half, we were kind of in the dark. 
and I'm being too far-fetched in imagining there is a link with an unfired rocket. You know it's there, but its path has not yet been determined. You don't know where it's going to land. You have the fear of the unknown. But now, listen to the narrator's clarity. It's like a veil has been lifted. I can see the point of it. Quote, Closest to the zero among them all, perhaps it was the African Enzian, the protégé of Major Weissmann. At the Versuchenstalt, behind his back, he was known as Weissmann's monster, probably less out of racism than at the picture the two of them made. Enzian towering a foot over Weissmann, who was balding, scholarly, peering up at the African through eyeglass lenses, thick as bottles, skipping now and then to keep up as they stalked over the asphalt and through the labs and offices. Enzian dominating every room and landscape of those early rocket days. Perkler's clearest memory of him is his first, in the testing room at Kummersdorf, surrounded by electric colours, green nitrogen bottles, a thick tangle of red, yellow and blue plumbing. Enzian's own copper face with the same kind of serenity that now and then drifted into Mondalgans, watching in one of the mirrors the image of a rocket engine beyond the safety partition. In the stale air of that room, snapping with last-minute anxieties, nicotine craving, under reasonable prayer, Enzian was at peace. This is such clarity from the narrator now. If we'd only had this at the beginning of the novel... Are these reverse symmetries coming into play? I'm guessing that this is a novel that requires a reread. There's a wonderful description of the difficulty of designing these rockets and making them work. And then Fran's daughter, Ilza, appears at Pienemunde where he's working. Weissman has brought her, and Franz realises that Weissman knows everything of Ilza and Lenny. Ilza has been freed from a guarded ghetto, a, quote, re-education camp, where Lenny is used as a sex slave for the prison guards. He dreams of saving her, and this is a very harrowing and very sad part of the novel. Ilsa is allowed to stay for a while with him because she is not a threat to the security of the rocket programme. She imagines living on the moon. And it reminds me a little bit of Bewilderment with those beautiful descriptions of exoplanets. Perkler dreams about Kakula's dream of a chemical compound that was the foundation of the rocket programme. And then Fritz comes home to find Ilza gone. A note reads, quote, Pappy, they want me back. Maybe they'll let me see you again. I hope so. I love you, Ilza. And he is heartbroken. He and Weissman discuss the intricacies of getting a bomb to function and he feels his negotiation of Ilza and Lenny is equally intricate, just like the bomb. Quote, he was expected to behave a certain way, not just to play a role, but to live it. Any deviations into jealousy, metaphysics, vagueness would be picked up immediately. He would either be corrected back on course or allowed to fall. This negotiation is his currency and he works night and day for the programme to try to ensure their safety. Ilza does eventually return, but she is so different that he worries that they may be supplying him with a child imposter. Quote, He ought to know if this child was his own or not, but he didn't. Too much had happened between. Too much history. It's quite clear she's not his daughter, but a way of keeping Fritz in line. And he realises this when he mentions the moon, which he and his daughter had previously fantasised about living on. And this daughter, imposter, responds with, quote, Who wants to live on the moon? 
There's a possible fancy about a Disneyland-type place run by children called Svalthkinder, which is a very difficult read for the ideas of incest and paedophilia that it raises. Fritz compares his daughter's or his imposter daughter regularly repeated appearances to the regular repetition of frames in film. Quote, they have used it to create for him the moving image of a daughter, flashing him only these summertime frames of her, leaving it to him to build the illusion of a single child. He compares himself to the wax rocket in a wind tunnel and how the rocket was stretched to a, quote, high point with a lower shoulder aft of it and seen how his own face might be plotted, not in light, but in net forces acting upon it from the flow of Reich and coercion and love it moved through, and known that it must suffer the same degradation as death will warp face to skull. Now, this is by far my favourite part of the book so far. I really feel empathy for the character Fritz, and it's such a wonderful description of Pina Monde. Now, Franz goes back to the, quote, dream world, this lie of Svalfkinder with Ilza. He knows she's in the Dora camp, but it's denied access to her. And then we have a breakthrough in the plot. Weissman tells Perkler that they are going to modify one rocket with quintuple zero. Quote, this was to be his special destiny. He had to develop a plastic fairing of a certain size with certain insulating properties for the propulsion section of the rocket. The propulsion engineer was the busiest on the project, rewriting steam and fuel lines, relocating hardware, whatever the new device was, nobody saw it. According to the rumour, it was being produced elsewhere and was nicknamed the Schwarzgerat because of the high secrecy surrounding it. Even the weight was classified. Now, I thought we were going to get more information, but we're denied this. Will we ever learn exactly what this Schwarzgerat is and how it's being developed? Is it to target Slotherop, since he may have some psychic Pavlovian attunement instilled in him at an early age by Yamf? And I wonder if it's a plastic compartment to store a cache of drugs, maybe. Enzian seems pretty keen to find it. Is that too far-fetched? Let's see. Anyway, moving on in the narrative. After the war, Perkler receives a note stating, quote, she has been released. She will meet you there. And the implication is it's Ilza, but who can say? The narrator continues, quote, Perkler understood that this was payment for the retrofit work he'd done on the quintuple zero. How long had Weissman been keeping him deliberately on ice, all so he'd have a plastics man he could depend on when the time came? And then we cut to Slotherop and Greta Erdmann in Berlin. Sare says that he can get the Schwarzgerat for Slotherop for $10,000. Sare, Slotherop and Gustav, a composer, smoke the drugs Slotherop delivered from Potsdam, but they get busted by the police. And some American MPs, Slotherop escapes and returns to Greta Erdmann. And then we cut to on board the toilet ship Rücksichtslos. Achtfaden, who worked on the rocket project, is questioned on the location of the Eskarat and he betrays someone who worked on the guidance system. Slotherop and Greta are heading for Svinemund. He wants to find the Schwarzgerat and Greta's 11 or 12-year-old daughter, Bianca. They go to a city called Bad Karma and they hear of a rescue ship coming in that may have her daughter on board. Greta goes on board the ship Anubis, but Slotherop falls in the water and is rescued by Stefania Prokolovska whose husband, Antony, owns the ship. She tells her that Bianca is on board, and we learn that Greta left her daughter to entertain troops. Slotherop meets Greta's husband, Miklos Thanaz, 
they get to discussing the rocket program and he likens the rocket to quote a baby jesus with endless committees of herods out to destroy it in infancy prussians some of whom in their innermost hearts still felt artillery to be a dangerous innovation if you'd been out there inside the first minute you saw you grew docile under its it really did possess a Max Weber charisma, some joyful and deeply rational force the state bureaucracy could never routinize, against which it could not prevail. They did not resist it, but they also allowed it to happen. We can't imagine anyone choosing a role like that, but every year, somehow, their numbers grow. Now, this is an interesting and a strange comparison to an almost religious icon. How it bends the hearts of people, it hypnotizes them. And that comment leads to a wild orgy, probably Slotherop's fantasy, on the boat as it heads towards Sveinamunda. Slotherop has sex with Bianca and then leaves her. He meets a Japanese man called Ensign Morituri who tells him that Greta murdered Jewish children. Bianca disappears and Slotherop finds her mother, Greta. And then we have a history of Greta, or here Gretel, retold to Slotherop and we see parts of her film career. She was called Katia by Bukero. And I'm thinking, aha, the catcher from the first half of the novel. And she's kept at the castle, which appears to be the Imipolex Plastics Factory, in a forest. And she overhears a meeting where the Ethgarat, or some letter, is being discussed. And this gets Slotherop's attention. Gottfried is also mentioned at this point. She is dressed in Imipolex clothing. Quote, nothing I ever wore before or since aroused me as much as Imipolex. A character called Drona wears a fake penis made of this imiplex plastic. and They make love and she awakes later alone. And I'm thinking this imiplex reminds me of the invented nylon. Greta says of this imiplex, quote, They promise me brassieres, chemises, stockings, gowns of the same material. Slotherop is to the quintuple zero what the rocket or escarat as Ahab is to the whale, I think. He believes his desire to find out about Imiplex has been inserted into his brain. Quote, he knows it's the escarat after all that's following him. It and the pale plastic ubiquity of Laszlo Yamf. That if he's been seeker and sought, well, he's also baited and bait. The Imiplex question was planted for him by somebody back at the Casino Hermann Göring, with hopes it would fly into a full imipolectique with its own potency in the zone. But they knew Slotherop would jump for it. Looks like there are sub-Slotherop needs they know about, and he doesn't. This is humiliating on the face of it, but now there's also the even more annoying question, what do I need that badly? This is very Freudian, and I love the idea of a need being implanted into the subconscious. Slotherop reminisces at how, quote, dousing rockets used to be a gift and now the, quote, bridges are down for good. He thinks he has lost his ability to predict where the rockets will fall and, quote, he is less anxious about betraying those who trust him. He thinks he sees Bianca and slips and falls over the side of the Anubis. Then on to the next chapter. He's rescued by a fishing boat and it's Captain Frau Knab who, quote, runs black market items all along the Baltic coast. They're sailing to Sveinmund and she knows how to find Der Springer, the white knight. Slotherop flashes a plastic white knight, the one that Sare Bummer gave him as a signal. Yes, that is his surname. At a man who appears just as Gelly Tripping had stated and Der Springer greets him, quote, Gerhard von Gold at your service. 
Amongst the starving of Svinamond, they break out into a musical number about the black market. It's all very surreal. They take Narva's boat along the coast, along with chimps and entertainers to sail to Pinamund. They think Chitrine may be there too. And when they get to the docks, some Russians take away Von Gol and a rescue ensues. Now Narish, a guidance man, and Slothrop lead the rescue attempt on Springer, who has been drugged. They meet Zhdaev and Chicherin. They rendezvous with Fragnab and the fishing vessel, but Narish gets left behind. And then we cut to Enzian, Andreas and Christian. The Empty Ones are a part of the Herero group and are enforcing abortions, but they are too late to save Christian's sister Maria from their clutches. They think she may be with her husband at the local motorcycle factory. We have a remarkable thoughts from Enzian where he compares the construction of the rocket to a religious text and how there aren't really any sides in a war, only the tacit agreement between the sides in favour of advancing technology. Quote, It means this war was never political at all. The politics was all theatre, all just to keep the people distracted. Secretly, it was being dictated instead by the needs of technology. He goes on to state that this technology keeps, quote, our stolen earth for the human elite who have no right at all to be where they are. Now, this, to me, is a very eye-opening and controversial idea from Enzian. It sounds rooted in paranoia. Finally, Enzian, quote, gets the address of Ombindi's medical connection from Maria's husband that they discover at the motorcycle factory, where hopefully Maria can be rescued. Ombindi is Enzian's main competition for Zone Herero leadership. Back on Fraudnarm's ship with Slothrop, he's berating Von Gohl, or Der Springer, for leaving Narish behind. Von Gohl gets Slothrop to get a package in return for discharge papers for him. He jumps onto the Anubis from Frau Knab's boat. Listen to this. Quote, Up the slippery ladder goes salty and buccaneering Slothrop, hefting his grappling hook, letting out line, keeping an eye on that otto. Wind up, spin like a lasso. Wee! Clank! The whole book is peppered with these wonderful little descriptions. He's told to retrieve the package behind the generator for Springer, Von Gohl. And when he gets to the generator room, although the narrator doesn't say explicitly, it seems pretty clear to me that here is the limp and dead body of Bianca. Is this Bianca to you? Listen to this quote. I see little thighs in wet silk swing against his face. Who do you think this is? Now, Brigadier Pudding has died and Katya roams the white visitation building. Quote, one day she found the cans of film stacked carelessly by Webley Silvernail in what had been a music room, occupied now only by a disintegrating Wittmer harpsichord no one played. Quills and stops broken shamefully, strings left to sharp, flat or crowed in the busy knives of weather, pushing relentlessly into all the rooms. Knives of weather, I love that description. She spools up one of her old films and recalls Grigory watching it. At the end is a short film by Osby Field where the idea of joint hallucination is discussed and whether this could apply to the whole of the White Visitation Project. Quote, the whole dark, grandiose scheme. Now, Pirate Prentice has what is perhaps a dream or a continuation of the dream from the opening chapter. This is a very tough chapter. There's a lot of guilt. There's agents turning double agents. And the section on the genocide of Dodos by Katya's forefathers reminds me of the genocide of the Herero people by the German state. We go back to Slotherup. He's roaming war-torn Europe where people are starving. There's a potato shortage because the Germans use them for making rocket alcohol. 
He finds a mattress and has a snooze. He dreams of his friend from part one called Tantivy. He also dreams this wonderful liaison with a tree. In an echo of the guilt Katya had for the genocide wrought by her forefathers, Slotherup feels guilt over his family who ran paper mills. Quote, Slotherup's intensely alert to trees, finally. When he comes in among trees, he will spend time touching them, studying them, sitting very quietly near them and understanding that each tree is a creature carrying on its individual life, aware of what's happening around it, not just some hunk of wood to be cut down. Slotherup's family actually made its money-killing trees, amputating them from their roots, chopping them up, grinding them to pulp, bleaching that to paper and getting paid for this with more paper. That's really insane, he shakes his head. There's insanity in my family. He looks up. The trees are still. They know he's there. They probably also know what he's thinking. I'm sorry, he tells them. I can't do anything about those people. They're all out of my reach. What can I do? A medium-sized pine nearby nods its top and suggests. Next time you come across a logging operation out here, find one of their tractors that isn't being guarded and take its oil filter with you. That's what you can do. I love that wonderful animism. It reminds me of Richard Powers and the fact that I haven't read the overstory where the power and beauty of trees is explored. It also reminds me of the Ents from The Lord of the Rings. Now Slotherup meets a child, Ludwig, who is looking for a lost lemming called Ursula. And then we have a history of Slotherup's ancestors, who were pig farmers. There's that inverted symmetry again, the inception of the main character coming towards the end of the novel. There's more on that later. And our current Slotherup, i.e. Tyrone Slotherup here, wonders what would have happened if his forefathers... Radical Christian ideas had been adopted rather than spurned. Quote, Might there have been fewer crimes in the name of Jesus and more mercy in the name of Judas Iscariot? Slotherop, who's wearing Tichirin's Russian uniform that he exchanged clothes with earlier, bumps into Marvi, who doesn't recognise him. He's with a character called Chicklets, a manufacturer of very problematic dolls for kids, such as a doll filled with ketchup that kids are supposed to stab. Now, I sometimes feel like I'm reading something that's been written by a teenager. That's a problem I have with a lot of the comedy. On the surface, it's quite slapstick and Monty Python, but at heart, it seems to lack any real human empathy and warmth. It leads me to polite smirking as I'm reading, rather than laugh out loud funny. Anyway, criticism over. Let's move on. They get to the Schwartz Commando, and we hear Slotherup declare what he wants. Quote, the Escarat, now, okay? If I can find that escarat and how Jamp was hooked in, I can find that out. Yeah, yeah, Imipolex now. He warns the Schwartz commander that a raid on them is planned that night. Quote, maybe you'd better clear out. Enzian is not there, but Orokambe is, and he tells Slotherop about the mandala. It's very mystical. They almost treat the rocket like a modern-day totem pole. Quote, you can see how we might feel it speak to us, even if we don't set up one on its fins and worship it. It is described by Orokambe in Symmetries. More on that later. Now, Orokambe, remember, is a right-hand man of Enzian in the Schwartz Commando. He describes how the Herreros were, quote, passed over to their quest for the rocket by von Trother. Now, von Trother is a German general who aided the genocide of Herreros in colonial Germany in the early 1900s, one of the first genocides. We learn what Narish, the guidance man, knows of this Escarat and quintuple zero. Quote, A. There was a radio link from the ground to the Escarat, but not the other way round. B. There was an interference problem between a survey actuator and a special oxygen line running after the device from the main tank. C. 
Weissman not only coordinated the Eskarat project at Nordhausen, but also commanded the battery that fired rocket Quintuple Zero. Quintuple Zero, total espionage, bit by this mosaic is growing. Radio link plus oxygen equals afterburner of some kind. But Narish also spoke of an asymmetry, a load inside near vein 3 that complicated role and your control almost impossibly. I'm thinking, I wonder what this load is? Question mark. Chicharin reflects on how the Americans via General Electric may have been involved in the production of the Escarat plastic imiplex. He starts thinking that there is a finger pointing to, quote, rocket cartel. There's actually an image of a finger in the text itself, like an emoji. It's a very lot 49 if you've read that book. It is a revelation to him, quote, a state that spans oceans and surface politics, sovereign as the International or the Church of Rome, and the rocket is its soul. I.G. Rakuten, circus bright, poster reds and yellows, rings beyond counting, all going at once. The stately finger twirls among them, all. Chitrin is certain. Dun 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 moment. We war can cross between states, and one side can suddenly appear to be fragmented among many opposing sides. I really like that mosaic reference. Now, Slotherop is going to Caxhaven, a town on the German north coast, to get those discharge papers promised from von Gaal. He's asked by the residents, because he's quite fat, whether he'd mind playing the part of Plekazunga, the pig hero, in the town's mythological reenactment. Ironically, a pig leads him away to safety. The Russians found Chitrin's uniform that Slotherop was wearing and have an arrest warrant on him for desertion. So we have some more comedy from Pynchon. Slothrop sings about his pig companion. Quote, A pig is a jolly companion, bore sow, barrow or guilt. A pig is a pal who'll boost your morale, though mountains may topple and tilt. When they've blackballed, bamboozled and burned you, when they've turned on you, Tory and Whig, though you may be thrown over by Tabby or Rover, you'll never go wrong with a pig. A pig, you'll never go wrong with a pig. I can just imagine that to a Bob Dylan backing band. Brilliant. This pig, Frieda, leads Slotherup to an abandoned Svolfkinder and then to the pig's owner, Franz Pockler, of all people, the chemist and the father to Ilsa. Slotherup asks about the Eskarat and Pockler responds with, quote, the Schwarzgerat. Pockler shakes his head. I don't know what it was. I was never that interested. Is that really all you're after? Their coffee cups take sunlight from the window and bounce it back up to the ceiling, bobbing ellipses of blue light. Don't know, except for this kind of personal tie-in with Imiplex G. It's an aromatic polymide. And I'm thinking an aromatic polymide? All this searching around for a bit of smelly plastic pinching. Why have I read a 900-page book if that's what it's about? I'm, of course, jesting. But it would be typical of pinching in this narrative trajectory, powerful and strong, if I, as the reader, was tricked and it would just fizzle out with no big explosion at the end of the novel. From my remembrance of Lot 49, that's what happens, I think. Let's wait and see. Maybe we will have some big explosion. Slotherop hears Franz's tale of Ilza and thinks Ilza must be Bianca. The narrator is not very sympathetic to Franz, recounting his daughter to Slotherop. Slotherop feels like he's been, quote, taken again by the nape and pushed against Bianca's dead flesh. What a way to describe the recounting of a tale. The narrator continues, quote, Ilza fathered on Greta Eldman's silver and passive image. Bianca conceived during the filming of that very scene that was in his thoughts as Porkler pumped in the fatal charge of sperm. How could they not be the same child? 
Portla tells Slotherup a little about Lazla Yanth and compares their hopes for what they were working on with the movie Metropolis. Quote, a corporate city-state where technology was the source of power. The engineer worked closely with the administrator. The masses laboured unseen far underground. And ultimate power lay with a single leader at the top fatherly and benevolent and just, who wore magnificent-looking suits and whose name Perkler couldn't remember, being too taken with the mad inventor that Perkler and his co-disciples under Yamph longed to be, indispensable to those who ran the metropolis, yet, at the end, the untamable lion who could let it all crash. Girl, state, masses, himself asserting his reality against them all in one last roaring plunge from rooftop to street. Is that the best analysis of a movie you've ever heard? I think it's the best one I've ever heard. Anyway, Puckler reflects on power and the fact that Yamp was quite retrograde in his experimentation. Quote, Yamp, oddly, never moved on. He never synthesised those new organic rings or chains he prophesied so dramatically. Now, moving on, Lyle Bland, an American and a financier of Yamp's experimentations, is brought into the conversation and we hear his backstory of how he became a Mason and his thoughts on Masonry. Quote, Non-Masons stay pretty much in the dark about what goes on, capital W, capital G, capital O. Though now and then something jumps out, exposes itself, jumps giggling back again, leaving you with a few details but a lot of awful suspicions, capital A, capital S. Some of the American founding fathers were Masons, for instance. There is a theory going around that the USA was and still is a gigantic Masonic plot under the ultimate control of the group known as the Illuminati. It is difficult to look for long at the strange single eye crowning the pyramid which is found on every dollar bill and not begin to believe the story a little. Bland got involved in the pinball business and the narrator talks humorously about the ball bearings in pinball machines, which are in fact sentient. Listen to this genius creativity from the author. Quote, The poor spherical soul gets trapped against the solenoid, thrashing, clonic, horrible, yes, they're sentient, all right, beings from the planetoid catchspiel of very, very elliptical orbit, which is to say it passed by Earth only once a long time ago, nearly back at the grainy, crepuscular edge. And nobody knows where catspiel is now, or when, or if it'll be back. It's that familiar division between return and one-shot visitation. If Catspiel had enough energy to leave the sun's field forever, then it has left these kind round beings in eternal exile, with no chance of ever being gathered back home, doomed to masquerade as ball bearings, as steelies in a thousand marble games. Brilliant. It reminds me of Richard Powell's fantastic descriptions of X-ray planets, if you read Bewilderment with me back in March. Wonderful stuff. Lyle Bland ultimately takes his mysticism too far and ends up dead, possibly some kind of spiritually induced suicide. Now, two doctors, Muffidge and Smontoon, are introduced in the next chapter. They're in Cuxhaven looking for Slotherop, said to be in a pig suit. At an alcohol dump, Bodine is taking lots of drugs. They flee when the police try to break up the party. Slotherup is nearby and escapes too. They head to Putsies, which is a bar or a brothel, and Bodine goes to deliver some drugs to Major Marvy. It is raided, and Marvy puts on Slotherup's pig costume, and Muffidge and Spontoon capture Marvy, thinking he's Slotherup. Alan Aikborn, anyone? Or a Mozart opera? And he's taken off in an ambulance, at which point they remove his testicles for Pointsman before taking him to Pointsman. Oh, that suddenly got very serious. No Mozart opera there. Anyway, Slotherup dreams of Bianca and Lenny dreams of Ilza and Slotherup doesn't manage to get his discharge papers. 
In the next chapter, Chichrine has, quote, traced Weissman's battery from Holland across the salt marshes and lupine and bones of cows to find this. This being the filming of a biopic of Martin Fuero, who Wikipedia says is, quote, a character in a poem by the Argentinian Jose Hernandez, an impoverished Argentinian drafted to serve at border forts defending the Argentine inner frontier against the native people. That's Martin Fuero, the character. The narrator goes on, reflecting Chitrin's state of mind. Quote, Over his head, the sky is streaked and hard as marble. He knows that Weissman installed the Escarat and fired the quintuple zero somewhere close by. Enzian can't be far behind. It will be here. Just like Ahab. Trying to find that elusive white whale, I'm thinking. But here, he has to wait. Quote, there is a counterfoise in the zone and he hopes he might meet Enzian here. And then we go into the fourth part called The Counterforce. So the fourth part starts with a hilarious commentary from Betty Davis and Margaret Dumont, who are film actresses, as they hear pirate penzance flying overhead. Quote, The sound is low, buzzing and guttural. Betty Davis freezes, tosses her head, flicks her cigarette. What, she inquires, is that? Margaret Dumont smiles, throws out her chest, looks down her nose. Well... It sounds, she replies, like a kazoo. Now, I'm thinking the dialogue tags inside the sentences are a brilliant construction. They show the jaw and long pauses in their derogatory speech. I just love that little bit of characterisation. And when I say loved, what I probably am saying is that I feel slightly starved of good characterisation at this point in the novel. And so it has turned into love. Anyway, Slotherop finds his harmonica from the first half. Quote, it happens to be the same one he lost in 1938 or 1939, down the toilet at the Roseland ballroom, but that's too long ago for him to remember. And I'm thinking, it's actually only been a couple of weeks for us, the reader. But I like that little comment on time experience for the reader versus time experience by a character. He's sort of wandering around aimlessly in the zone, thinking how to return to America. He's still being followed by Osby Phil and Webley Sylvaner and Katya. And outside a church, Slotherup imagines the sperm of a hangman turning into a mandrake and how he is then able to make money. That's quite a beautiful description, really. It's very surreal and full of magic and humour. In the next chapter, Roger Mexico, who was Pointsman's colleague from the first half, the anti-Pointsman and Jessica's lover, is driving to Cuxhaven in Germany to find Jessica. She went there with Jeremy Beaver, her betrothed, after the war ended. He's doing air defence and Jessica says, quote, There's something still on, don't call it a war. Roger was hoping that after the war she would leave Jeremy and join him. Quote, the war was the condition she needed for being with Roger. Peace allows her to leave him. The narrator continues, quote, Ta-ta, mad Roger, it's been grand, a wartime fling. When we came, it was utterly incendiary. Your arms open wide as the fortress's wings. We had our military secrets. We fooled the fat old colonels right and left, but stand down, time must come to war. Yikes, I must run, sweet Roger. Really, it's been dreamy. Roger is truly heartbroken. She has a whole life to him. Quote, she has wandered away from him down the beach. The sun is so bright today that the shadows by her Achilles tendon are drawn sharp and black as seams up the heel of a silk stocking. 
Her head, as always, is bent forward away. The bare nape he's never stopped loving will never see again. Unprotected as her beauty, her innocence of how forever in peril it moves through the world. She may know a little, may think of herself, face and body, as pretty, but he could never tell her all the rest. How many other living things, birds, nights, smelling of grass and rain, sunlit moments of simple peace, also gather in what she is to him, was. He is losing more than single Jessica. He is losing a full range of life, of being for the first time at ease in the creation, going back to the winter now, drawing back into his single envelope. The effort it takes to extend any further is more than he can make alone. Now I'm thinking, at this moment, it's like we really feel that implied author does understand humanity. Now, Gloaming lets Roger know that Slotherup was under surveillance because of, quote, the Yamp business. And then we have a strange dream-like sequence involving Roger Mexico, pointsman and pirate apprentice. Yamp appears in his old age, quote, wearing a bow tie of a certain limp greyish lavender, a colour for long-dying afternoons through conservatory windows, minor key leader about days gone by, plaintive pianos, pipe smoke in a stuffy parlour, overcast Sunday walks by canals. What a beautiful description of a lazy and privileged middle class slash upper middle class afternoon spent in Germany. We cut to Thuringia and Barbara Eddie Pensiero, quote, amphetamine enthusiast, an expert reader of shivers, is giving a haircut to his colonel. An overhead bulb is kept lighted by a hand generator cranked by Paddy, quote, Electro McGonagall, an expert reader of strobing frequencies. We hear the story of Byron the Bulb, who is immortal. And this is very strange. Byron the Bulb, in his immortality and preaching to the baby bulbs, reminds me a little of this book. Kind of immortal. And preaching to a younger generation, perhaps just like a reading of the poet Byron, again immortal, and preaching through his works to an endlessly younger generation. I'm possibly taking that analogy too far. Apologies. Quote, one by one, over the months, the other bulbs burn out and are gone. The first few of these hit Byron hard. He's still a new arrival, still hasn't accepted his immortality. Byron the bulb ends up having a very similar fate to Slotherop's harmonica and being flushed down the toilet after a very bizarre sexual experiment. He goes on various adventures and the story ends with him fighting against the grid and the bulb makers, who is known as Phoebus. Now, Phoebus was Zeus's son, Apollo, who is associated with the sun. Quote, His youthful dreams of organising all the bulbs seem impossible now. He is condemned to go on forever, knowing the truth and powerless to change anything. Now, the truth being the idea of everlasting light bulbs. Classic conspiracy theorists thinking from the implied author here. You've probably heard the one about everlasting batteries as well and how it's a conspiracy amongst battery makers to make money. Anyway, we go back to the barber and Yamp walks in ready for a haircut. Katya comes onto town riding on a stolen bicycle. She meets Enzian. He wants her to stick around so she can lure in Slotherup. She states her wants, quote... I don't want to get away with some shallow win. I don't just want to, I don't know, pay him back for the octopus or something. Now, that something is Blicero Weissman she's referring to. Don't I have to know why he's out here? What I did to him for them? How can they be stopped? How long can I get away with easy work? Cheap exits. Shouldn't I be going all the way in? Now, Enzin says they've captured Thanats. Quick backstory here. 
Thanos fell overboard from the Anubis with Slotherop and was rescued by a Polish undertaker who reflects on curves, singular points and reverse symmetries when thinking of the course of people's lives and how this is represented by lightning strikes. This undertaker wants to get struck himself by lightning and designs a helmet to aid the process and he does so. Anyway, Thanos washes up ashore and discovers a band of homosexual prison camp inmates called the 175s, waiting for Blacaro to be their leader. Thanos seeks out Blacaro at a local gasworks, and his memory of the last rocket firing grows clearer, which is now being related to Enzian. Thanos is coming to see that, quote, the two children, Gottfried and Bianca, are the same. Thanos tells the Schwarzkommando everything, quote, by the time he's done, they will all know what the Schwarzkarat was, how it was used, where the quintuple zero was fired from, and which way it was pointed. And I'm thinking, something tells me that us, the reader, may not be so fortunate. Let's wait and see. We then have a long discursive chapter, which feels a little bit like Slotherop falling apart. He thinks of his father and his drunken mother. I wonder if this is the scattering of memories before his death. The chapter ends with some characteristics of Imiplex G. Quote, the first plastic that is actually erectile, and then various theories about the necessary stimulus. In the next chapter, Soviet intelligence officer Nicholas Ripoff is questioning Chitrin as to why he's after his half-brother Enzian. Chitrin's response is quite illuminating. Quote, I thought I was being punished, passed over. I blamed him. Chitrin learns his future from Ripov, which is a month's leave, then back to Russia, then to Central Asia with captured German rocket personnel. Roger Mexico and his colleagues are at a cafe in Germany discussing the fact that the rocket was fired south east and west but not north roger jessica and jeremy meet up which is a bit awkward and when jessica leaves they discuss the british operation backfire quote the british program to assemble some a4s and fire them out into the north sea what else are they going to talk about why roger keeps asking trying to annoy jeremy why do you want to put them together and fire them we've captured them haven't we says jeremy what does one do with a rocket but why says roger why damn it to see obviously says jeremy that's a great reason to fire a rocket isn't it just to see continuing the narrative we learn that slotherop has become quote one plucked albatross plucked hell stripped scattered all over the zone it's doubtful if he can ever be found again in the conventional sense of positively identified and detained Now I'm thinking, has he been fired like a human cannibal from one of those rockets? Or is this a metaphorical scattering as he loses his mind? After inventing names for disgusting food, Jeremy leaves with Jessica and Roger leaves with Bodine. It's another very strange chapter. And continuing the narrative, in the next chapter we have Geli Tripping searching for Chicherin. She's in love. Quote, in her pack, Geli Tripping brings along a few of Chicherin's toenail clippings, a greying hair, a piece of bed sheet with a trace of a sperm, all tied in a white silk kerchief next to a bit of Adam and Eve root and a loaf of bread baked from wheat she has rolled naked in and ground against the sun. She has left off tending her herd of toads on the witch's hillsides and has passed her white wand to another apprentice. She's off to find her gallant attendant Hiller. Now there are a good few hundred of these young women in the zone who are smitten with love for Chitrine, all of them sharp as foxes, but none quite as stubborn as Geli, and none are witches. Blickero talks with Gottfried about death. 
And then Endian is transporting the Schwarzkommando rocket 00001, created from Scavenge rocket parts. Ludwig is there, who has finally found his lost lemming Ursula. Hurrah. And then Geli, quote, the young witch finds Vlaslav Chitrin at last. She puts a spell on him and they make love in the grass. And Enzian drives past him with the double zero double zero one without him realising. This is another moment of dramatic irony or a close shave by two characters unbeknown to them. There's more on that later. There's an interesting idea put forward in the next chapter. Quote, there never was a Dr. Yamf, a Pound's world-renowned analyst. Mickey Wuxtree Wuxtree. Yamf was only a fiction to help him explain what he felt so terribly, so immediately, in his genitals for those rockets each time exploding in the sky, to help him deny what he could not possibly admit, that he might be in love, in sexual love with his, and his race's death. Now, I'm thinking this is a very interesting idea. A Freudian death wish, but Porkler makes mention of Yamp previously, so surely he does exist. It can't be a figment of Slotherop's imagination. What do you think? It's certainly the way a conspiracy theorist's brain might work. Now, we get a tarot reading of Blacaro, who's Weissman. His card, the Knight of Swords, remember his symbol is a white knight, is covered by the tower. And a comparison to the rocket is made and the various interpretations of the tower card. It's all very interesting. Yes, the tower could be an erection. And so shock horror could be the rocket. We have a flashback. Gottfried, Katya's, quote, brother, is sent up in the quintuple zero. Quote, the liquid oxygen runs freezing so close to your cheek. Bones of frost to burn you past feeling. Soon there will be the fires too. The oven we fatten you for will glow. Here is the sergeant bringing the Zundkreutz, the pyrotechnic cross to light you off. The men are at attention. Get ready, Liebchen. The exact moment of his death will never be known. Reminds me slightly of Schrodinger's cat, that part. Gottfried then is in his oven. Remember the Hansel and Gretel oven from the first half? And the narrator states, quote, The two, boy and rocket, concurrently designed, its steel hindquarters bent so beautifully, he fits well. They are mated to each other. Schwarzgerat and next higher assembly. His bare limbs in their metal bondage writhe among the fuel. Oxidizer, live steam lines, thrust frame, compressed air battery, exhaust elbow, decomposer, tanks, vents, valves. And then the countdown. Quote, the countdown as we know it. 10, 9, 8 and so on was invented by Fritz Lang in 1929 for the Uta film Die Frau in Mond. He put it into the launch scene to heighten the suspense. It is another of my damned touches, Fritz Lang said. And then a Kabbalist called Steve Edelman says, quote, God sent out a pulse of energy into the void. It presently branched and sorted into 10 distinct spheres or aspects corresponding to the numbers 1 to 10. These are known as the Zephyroth. To return to God, the soul must negotiate each of the Zephyroth from 10 back to 1. Armed with magic and faith, Kabbalists have set out to conquer the Sephiroth. Many Kabbalist secrets have to do with making the trip successfully. Now, the Zephiroth fall into a pattern, which is called the Tree of Life. It is also the body of God. Drawn among the 10 spheres are 22 paths. Each path corresponds to a letter of the Hebrew alphabet and also to one of the cards called Major Arcana in the Tarot. So although the rocket countdown appears to be serial, it actually conceals the tree of life which must be apprehended all at once, together, in parallel. So Dan Brown, Da Vinci Code, mystical ideas seen in regular items of life, like a rocket. 
Gottfried is fired and the rocket his body, quote, shrouded by the imperplex plastic. He moves past branchless and rushes into growing whiteness. Quote, what is this death but a whitening, a carrying of whiteness to ultra-white? What is it but bleaches, detergents, oxidizers, abrasives, strekfus? Now this means drawn by, and there's another name for Blackera. Strekfus, he's been today to the boy's tormented muscles, but more appropriately is he blicker, Bleicherode, bleacher, blicero, extending, rarifying the Caucasian palate to an abolition of pigment, of melanin, of spectrum, of separateness from shade to shade. It is so white. This blicero is one mean guy. Did he want Gottfried to have the ultimate whiteness? Is this a comment on the stupidity of racial purity? And there's the idea of the death wish, man's control or lack of control over technology and nature. And so the novel ends with the ultimate ejaculation, transporting this doomed boy into death, who Chitrin said was also Bianca, so not sure how the timeline works there. But maybe it represents the whole of humanity, male and female. And the rocket, described as a star, falls on the film of, quote, a face we all know. Is the rocket the ultimate sex toy for Blackero, just as the rocket is taking off, the narrator comments, quote, the sound of the rocket grows to full cry. The rocket stays a moment longer on the steel table, then slowly trembling, furiously muscular, it begins to rise. Four seconds later, it begins to pitch over, but the flame is too bright for anyone to see Gottfried inside, except now as an erotic category hallucinated out of that blue violence for purposes of self-arousal. It's interesting that the novel ends with no wind down, so to speak. It ends at the moment of the rocket launch. So, that was a long read. If you did it in five weeks, well done. It is a long read. A very bizarre and discursive novel. I very much enjoyed it in parts. There were some funnyish moments and there were some beautiful descriptions. If I could summarise it in a sentence, I'd probably say fear of impotence drives a novel, fear of death and a love of big boys' toys, rockets and technology. There are loads of really interesting ideas to come out of the novel. And these are just some of my favourite thoughts, I guess. I mean, so much has probably been written about this. I haven't read anything, any commentaries, but just initial impressions, this is what I took from the novel. The first thing is the idea of sex and the rocket. Remember Greta Erdman posing for Slotherop in a very erotic way and the narrator seems to compare the top of, quote, this singular point at the top of a lady's stocking to, quote, watching that singular point at the top of the rocket where the fuse is. The narrator goes on to pose a question, quote, do all these points imply like the rockets and annihilation? What is that detonating in the sky above the cathedral beneath the edge of the razor under the rose? And then we have Thanats on the boat. He says to the rocket, quote, fueled, alive, ready for firing, 50 feet high, trembling, and then the fantastic, virile roar. Your ears nearly burst, cruel, hard, thrusting into the virgin blue robes of the sky. My friend, oh, so phallic, wouldn't you say? We also have this idea of class broken down by war. Just over halfway, where we have the pride of Franz Pokler when he invents the Halbmodel solution for the rocket. Quote, Pokler helped in working out the Halbmodel solution, bisecting the model lengthwise and mounting it flat sides to the wall of the test chamber, bringing the tubes through that way to all the manometers outside, 
A Berlin slum dweller, he thought, knew how to think in half rations, but it was a rare moment of pride. No one could really claim credit 100% for any idea. It was a corporate intelligence at work. Specialisation hardly mattered. Class lines even less. The social spectrum ran from von Braun, the Prussian aristocrat, down to the likes of Perkler, who would eat an apple in the street, yet they were all equally at the rocket's mercy. Not only danger from explosions or falling hardware, but also its dumbness, its dead weight, its obstinate and palpable mystery. Class is broken down by war. We have the duality of the rockets, the male or the female, or the maybe you could think of it as yin and yang. Quote, the ignition flame backed up through the conduit into the tank. The blast demolished the test stand, killing Dr. Varmke and two others. First blood, first sacrifice. Kurt Moldaugen took it as a sign. One of these German mystics who grew up reading Hess, Stefan George and Richard Wilhelm, ready to accept Hitler on the basis of Demian metaphysics. He seemed to look at fuel and oxidizer as paired opposites, male and female principles, uniting in the mystical egg of the combustion chamber, creation and destruction, fire and water, chemical plus and chemical minus. And later, when we hear of Slotherop's ancestors, William Slotherop states, quote, What Jesus was for the elect, Judas Iscariot was for the preterite. Everything in the creation has its equal and opposite counterpart. When Orakambe of the Schwarzkommando talks to the rocket, it's almost with mystical reverence. First, he discusses the Schwarzkommando mandala, K-E-Z-V-H. Quote, Klar is fertilization and birth. Entlüftung, that's the E, is the breath, the soul. Z is Zündung, and Wurstuf are the male signs. Zündung and Wurstuf are the male signs. The activities, fire and preparational building. And in the centre here, Hauptstufe, H, it is the pen where we keep the sacred cattle. The souls, the ancestors, all the same here. Birth, soul, fire, building, male and female together. The four fins of the rocket made across another mandala. Number one pointed the way it would fly. Two for pitch, three for yaw and roll, four for pitch. Each opposite pair of veins worked together and moved in opposite senses. Opposites together, you can see how we might feel it speak to us, even if we don't set one up on its fins and worship it. We also have this idea of reverse symmetries again. There's a lot of talk of this. I think I mentioned this in the first half. The fact that the rocket almost reverses science. It destroys before you even hear it. Pynchon defines the physical attributes of his characters well after they've been introduced into the narrative, as, as I mentioned previously. Like that Enzian example where we are told he towers over Weissman well over halfway through the novel after we've been introduced to both of them. Also, we really get an understanding of Fritz Perkler's backstory at page 500. Everything begins to come into alignment and make sense. There is also a symmetry in the idea of paranoia, connectedness and anti-paranoia. Nothing is connected. This is Slotherop's narrator. Quote, Slotherop perceives that he is losing his mind. If there is something comforting, religious, if you want about paranoia, there is still also anti-paranoia, where nothing is connected to anything, a condition not many of us can bear for long. It really reminds me of the comment about Roger Mexico being the anti-pointsman. Everything has its opposite and has a symmetry, even paranoia. The narrator describes what anti-paranoia feels like. Quote, he feels the whole city around him going back, roofless, vulnerable, uncentred as he is, and only pasteboard images now of the listening enemy left between him and the wet sky. I also thought the novel was quite similar to Bewilderment in a way. When Franz is looking after his little daughter Ilsa and she asks about the rocket, she says, quote, where does it go? And he says, wherever you tell it to. She says, may I fly in it someday? I'd fit inside, wouldn't I? 
She asked impossible questions. Someday, Pokler told her, perhaps someday to the moon. The moon, as if he were going to tell a story. When none followed, she made up her own. The engineer in the next cubicle had a map of the moon tacked to his fiberboard wall, and she spent hours studying it, deciding where she wanted to live, passing over the bright rays of Kepler, the rugged solitude of the southern highlands, the spectacular views at Copernicus and Eratosthenes. She chose a small, pretty crater in the Sea of Tranquility called Masculine B. They would build a house right on the rim, Mutti and she and Perkler, gold mountains out of one window and the wide sea out of the other, earth green and blue in the sky. Should we have told her what the seas and the moon really were? Told her there was nothing to breathe? His ignorance frightened him. His ineptitude as a father knights in the cubicle, with Ilza curled a few feet away in a canvas army cot, little grey squirrel under her blanket. He'd wonder if she wasn't really better off as a ward of the Reich. He'd heard there were camps, but saw nothing sinister in it. He took the government at their word, re-education. I've made such a mess of everything. They have qualified people, they're trained personnel. They know what a child needs. Staring up at the electric scatter from this part of Pinamunda, mapping across his piece of seeding priorities, abandoned dreams, favour in the eyes of the master fantasists in Berlin, while sometimes Ilza whispered to him bedtime stories about the moon she would live on, till he had transferred silently to a world that wasn't this one after all, a map without any national borders, insecure and exhilarating, in which flight was as natural as breathing. But I'll fall, no, rising, look, down, nothing to be afraid of, this time it's good, yes, firmly in flight, it's working, yes, so tender and poignant. There are a lot of wonderful analogies in the book, and I particularly enjoyed the ones that I found unique and relevant to the thoughts of the narrator. For example, to Fritz Perkler in Pienemunde, quote, the air rippled like camouflage. And of the Anubis, quote, the white ship settles like the soul of a kerosene lamp just lit into its evening routine. And when Slotherops rescued on the fishing ship, the wash from the engine is described as, quote, a great rooster tail foams erect against the rain. And as Enzian and Christian cycles the refinery, there's a wonderful evocation of the speed. Originally, I thought he was describing the stairs as teeth, but maybe it's just the clatter of their teeth as they're trying to ride downstairs. Quote, a crowd of DPs is milling by the ruin of an ornamental fountain. A score of them, eyes of ash smudged into faces white as salt. The Herreros go swerving by them, halfway up a shallow flight of long steps dovetailing into the grade of the street, teeth slamming together upper and lower, cycle frames squeaking shrill, up and down the steps past wordless plosions of Slavic breath. Such great writing, we really feel the rush of the bikes with these long sentences in alliteration. I thought it was also quite interesting the idea of gravity and rainbow being maybe gravity, the science, and rainbow, the more unscientific or human interpretation of science listen to this quote about the firing of a rocket quote the aggregate is en route nothing can be changed no one else here cares for the penetralia of the moment or last mysteries the novel is almost a reverse symmetry for the flight of a rocket we started the novel with the unscientific irrational quote white visitation full of witchcraft and the supernatural and now in the book we're confronted with the science Puckler's experiences of building the rocket at i.e. the realities of how to make a rocket take off and get to its destination. But there will still be those last mysteries, those irrational improbabilities of the destination and landing spot. As Weissman comments later, quote, we all move in an ellipse of uncertainty. It's interesting, this idea of parabolas. The trajectory of the rocket, as I say, is a parabola, and Pynchon makes many references to parabolas throughout the novel in very diverse subjects, even music. Later in the novel, Slotherup reduces the whole of Western musical tradition to a parabolic arc. He shouts to an American, quote, 
A parabola, a trap, you were never immune over there from the simple-minded German symphonic arc, tonic to dominant, back again to tonic. And also we have maybe Pynchon telling us how to read his book. When Enzian describes the rocket as a holy text, he states, quote, we are supposed to be the scholar magicians of the zone with somewhere in it a text to be picked to pieces, annotated, explicated, till it's all squeezed limp of its last drop. Well, we assumed that this holy text had to be the rocket. What else? Its symmetries, its latencies, the cuteness of its enchanted and seduced us, while the real text persisted somewhere else in its darkness, our darkness, even this far from Sudvest, we are not to be spared the ancient tragedy of lost messages a curse that will never leave us. Now, I think this quote is very interesting. It reveals many layers of the book. At this moment in the narrative, I have all these questions about what the Escarat is, will Enzian survive, will Slotherop find the triple zero, the quintuple zero. But actually, here's a direct message from the author to tell me that the real content of the novel won't be found by this surface analysis. It's all the hidden text, the hidden meanings that make up the novel. What do you think? Am I over-interpreting Enzian's thoughts? There's some really lovely turns of phrase in the book. Not a single cliche in the book. How does Pynchon describe rain in a new way? This is Trudy and Slotherup after having nasal sex. Quote, they fell asleep in the room full of snoring with low-pitched twangs out of the piano and the rain's a million-legged scuttle in the courtyards outside. And we have that wonderful word parapyromancy. Quote, the ability to prophesy through contemplating the way people roll reefers, the shape, the licking pattern, the wrinkles and folds or absence thereof in the paper. You will soon be in love, says Sari. I think the idea of cross-border economics in war is an interesting idea in the book. Continuing the idea of the currency of markets in the story of Byron the Bowl, we hear that Germany was undersold tungsten carbide by the Americans. Quote, when the war came, some people thought it unpatriotic of General Electric to have given Germany an edge like that. I mentioned previously of the dramatic irony in the book and we know something that characters don't or they frequently just miss each other by a fraction, pure coincidence. It really shows up the artifice of fiction and this happens quite a lot in the novel. Here are some of my favourites. So a secretary starts, quote, belting Roger in the shins with excess profits tax records from 1940 to 1944 of an English steel firm which happened to share a patent with Freitgeder Stahlwerk for an alloy using the liquid oxygen couplings for the line running after the Escarat in A4 number quintuple zero. But Roger's shins are not set up for this kind of information. The secretary's glasses fall off. Miss Müller Hochleben reading her name tag. You look beastly without your glasses. Put some back on at once. And then at the end of the novel, Enzian passes by Chicharin without knowing it. Quote, this is magic, sure, but not necessarily fantasy. Certainly not the first time a man has passed by his brother at the edge of the evening, often forever, without knowing it. We also have the idea of impotence and the fear of impotence in the book. Is the book one big hard-on? At its heart is a fear of impotence. There are so many references to hard-ons and impotence. Quote, there is an agadic tradition from around the 4th century that Isaac, at the moment Abraham was about to sacrifice him on Moria, saw the antechambers of the throne for the working mystic having the vision and passing through the chambers one by one is terrible and complex. You must have not only the schooling and countersigns and seals, not only the physical readiness through exercise and absence, but also a hard-on of resolution that will never go limp on you. This idea of fear of impotence crops up quite a lot. There's also a reference somewhere towards the end of the book about Weissman's fear of impotence. Quote, 
Her masochism, Weissman wrote from The Hague, is reassurance for her that she can still be hurt, that she is human and can cry at pain, because often she will forget. I can only try to guess how terrible that must be. So she needs the whip. She raises her asthma and surrender but in despair. Like your fears of impotence and mine, can it still, will it fail, but of true submission, of letting go of the self and passing into the all, there is nothing, not with Katya. She is not the victim I would have chosen to end this with. Perhaps before the end there will be another. Perhaps I dream. I am not here. Am I to devote myself to her fantasies? Is it a coincidence that this massive German war machine was devised by Hitler, famously impotent, and the rocket is anti-impotence? I want to talk a little bit about the idea of the democratisation of musical notes and Bach and Weber. This is the section with the Slothrop in Berlin with Trudy and Gustav, the composer. We've just had a narrative comment about the Locrian scale when Slothrop sees a discarded piano in the bombed-out streets. Quote, scattered piano keys, all white, an octave on B to be exact, or H in the German nomenclature, the notes of the rejected Locrian mode. And then we have a whole diatribe between Gustav who's progressive, and Sare, who's regressive, on the emancipation of the musical scale, the culmination being that each musical key on the keyboard has finally become emancipated from the strictures of diatonic harmony, only to have its chief herald, Weber, shot by the Americans. Ironic, since the Americans are the shining exemplar of democracy. See how the whole passage plays out. I think it's brilliant. Quote, Gustav is a composer. For months he has been carrying on a raging debate with Sare over who is better, Beethoven or Rossini. Sari is for Rossini. I'm not so much for Beethoven, qua Beethoven, Gustav argues, but as he represents the German dialectic, the incorporation of more and more notes into the scale, culminating with dodecaphonic democracy, where all notes get an equal hearing. Beethoven was one of the architects of musical freedom. He submitted to the demands of history, despite his deafness, while Rossini was retiring at the age of 36, womanising and getting fat. Beethoven was living a life filled with tragedy and grandeur. So, is Sari's customary answer to that one, which would you rather do? The point is, cutting off Gustav's usually indignant scream, a person feels good listening to Rossini, or you feel like listening to Beethoven is going out and invading Poland. Oh, to joy indeed, the man didn't even have a sense of humour. I tell you, shaking his skinny old fist, there's more of the sublime in the snare drum part of to the Gatza, Lazza, than in the whole Ninth Symphony. With Rossini, the whole point is that lovers always get together, isolation is overcome, and like it or not, that is the one great centripetal movement of the world. Through the machineries of greed, pettiness, and the abuse of power, love occurs. All the SHIT is transmuted to gold. The walls are breached, the balconies are scaled. Listen, it was a night in early May and the final bombardment of Berlin was in progress. Sari had to shout his head off. The Italian girl is in Algiers, the barber's in the crockery, the magpie's stealing everything in the sight. The world is rushing together. This rainy morning in the choir, it seemed that Gustav's German dialectic has come to its end. He has just had the word, all the way from Vienna, along some musician's grapevine, that Anton Weber is dead. Quote, shot in May by the Americans, senseless, accidentally, if you believe in accidents, some mess cook from North Carolina, some late draftee with a .45 he hardly knew how to use, too late for World War II, but not for Vaben. The excuse for raiding the house was that Vaben's brother was in the black market. Who isn't? Do you know what kind of myth that's going to make in a thousand years? The young barbarians coming in to murder the last European, standing at the far end of what had been going on since Bach. An expansion of music's polymorphous perversity to all notes were truly equal at last. Where was there to go after Weber? It was the moment of maximum freedom. It all had to come down. Another Götterdammerung. 
There we go. I find it fascinating how this music of the, quote, democracy of the scale flourished in this regressive autocratic state. And then we have the democratic state, America, snuffing out this progressive democratic music. Another reverse symmetry. Anyway, there were also some questions that I raised in the first half. Are those questions really relevant? This book is all about creating questions, not answering them. Me and my goal-directed capitalist western thinking anyway here goes will slothrop find this mythical triple zero bomb i don't think he ever did will he get to the bottom of the escarat well i don't think he did but we realize that the escarat is gottfried and i think slothrop did find bodin's hashish and escaped he was only tranquilized so he did survive that was good overall impressions of the book to me i'm not sure it has a really true heart and soul it's very clever oh boy is it clever but then alexa is clever but i wouldn't turn to her for some real companionship just like I probably wouldn't turn to this book for some real companionship. There's lots of very clever ideas in it, though. Who would I recommend it to? Would I recommend it to a friend? I probably wouldn't recommend it to any of the friends that I knew. However, I might, if I knew a very intelligent young adult, perhaps still living with his mum, who loves Marvel movies and wants to try something other than playing Fortnite or Call of Duty, I might recommend the book to that person. I'd also recommend it to someone like me who has heard about this big tome that... Every sentence is a PhD thesis and wants to really find out what it is. I'd like to talk a little bit now about August's book, Drive Your Plough Over the Bones of the Dead, by Olga Pokorzuk, who is Polish. This book is translated by Antonia Lloyd-Jones and it's published in 2009. If you're reading alongside, I'll be reading up to chapter 9 on page 138. The reason I'm reading it is it was given to me for my birthday by a very good friend of mine who is a writer. As I say, I know nothing about the author apart from the fact that she's Polish. So I'm going to read the first few pages and I'll give you my comments. Drive your plough over the bones of the dead. Chapter one, now pay attention. Once meek and in a perilous path, the just man kept his course along the vale of death. I'm already at an age and additionally in a state where I must always wash my feet thoroughly before bed in the event of having to be removed by an ambulance in the night. (laughs) That's brilliant. (laughs) It reminds me of that joke I heard recently on the radio about an elderly comedian who who said, I'm so old now, I have to buy ripe bananas. (laughs) Anyway... I'm already at an age, and additionally in a state, where I must always wash my feet thoroughly before bed in the event of having to be removed by an ambulance in the night. Had I examined the ephemeridae days that evening to see what was happening in the sky, I wouldn't have gone to bed at all. Meanwhile, I had fallen very fast asleep. I had helped myself with an infusion of hops, and I also took two valerian pills. So when I was woken in the middle of the night by hammering on the door, violent, immoderate, and thus ill-omened, I was unable to come round. I sprang up and stood by the bed unsteadily because my sleepy, shaky body couldn't make the leap from the innocence of sleep into wakefulness. I felt weak and began to reel as if about to lose consciousness. Unfortunately, this has been happening to me lately and has to do with my ailments. <clears throat> Capital A. I had to sit down and tell myself several times, I'm at home, it's night, someone's banging on the door. Only then did I manage to control my nerves. As I searched for my slippers in the dark, I could hear that whoever had been banging was now walking around the house and muttering. Downstairs in the cubbyhole for the electric meters, I keep the pepper spray. Dizzy gave me because of the poachers, and that was what now came to mind. In the darkness, I managed to seek out the familiar cold aerosol shape, and thus armed, I switched on the outside light, then looked at the porch through a small side window. There was a crunch of snow 
and into my field of vision came my neighbour, whom I call Oddball. He was wrapping himself in the tails of the old sheepskin coat I'd sometimes seen him wearing as he worked outside the house. Below the coat, I could see his striped pyjamas and heavy hiking boots. Absolutely love it. What on earth is Oddball doing outside, knocking on her door? The fact that he's called Oddball makes me think that this may have happened before, of course. Anyway, I'm really looking forward to reading that book and finding out what Oddball's got to say at midnight to this poor lady, who's obviously quite elderly, and finds it difficult to get to sleep anyway with her valerian pills. Thanks very much for listening. If you have any questions or comments, I'd love to hear them. So leave a comment below, or if you're listening to the podcast, send an email to bookshook at yahoo.com. And if you want to recommend a future book to read together, do let me know. Also, if you enjoyed this, please give it a thumbs up and subscribe. We'll give it five stars on your podcast app. Thank you very much for that. I look forward to discussing the first part of Drive Your Plough Over the Bones of the Dead by Olga Tokarczuk, translated by Antonia Lloyd-Jones, at the next episode of Bookshook on the second Friday of August. That's the 12th. See you then. (laughs) 